I'm going to read Romans 10, 1 to 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but that their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and tried to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end or the fulfilment of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law, that the man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you've been through Romans 9 and you will have heard from there that uh, the dilemma Paul is expounding in these three chapters, 9, 10, 11, is that God made a load of promises to the old people of Israel but now what's happened to them? You know, we're now talking about people believing and coming to Christ. We're talking about Gentiles, Romans, people who weren't Jews, people who were outside. And what's happened to Israel? They're still, well, they're more or less in opposition, aren't they? Oh, so does that mean that God's promises have just fizzled out? That's the problem he's dealing with. So... I need to start you in Romans 9. He makes the point, ancestry alone was never the golden ticket. I was thinking of DNA, stands for definitely not applicable, like it. Um, it was no good just being a Jew. Aren't we glad? You know, I mean, most of us wouldn't be here, for probably all of us. But it says that the pur it was that the purpose of God in election, choice, might stand not by him not by works but by him that calls and there were two absolutely beautiful conundrums in that Esau have I hated and it also mentions objects of his wrath prepared for destruction and there are people who will go off on a rant saying there you are God's chosen everything that's going to happen and he's chosen those who are going to hell that's what it says except it doesn't and we need to understand why. Because Paul is known for really congested arguments. In fact, if he'd written his letters about three times the length, we might have understood them a bit easier. But this isn't easy, this stuff. The interesting thing is the story of Jacob and Esau is in the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis. 
You look up Esau have I hated and it comes in Malachi, right at the other end of the Old Testament. He didn't say that to start with. And when he talks about those who are being lost as objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, the key is in the tense of the word prepared. It's in what New Testament Greek, I'm sorry about this, but you need it, calls a middle voice. And the force of it is that they prepared themselves for destruction. If you look at the plagues of Egypt, Moses and Pharaoh, ten plagues, for about the first half dozen, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You go on to number six, seven, or eight, something like that, and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a sad fact that if we carry on in our own way, there comes a time when that becomes by far the easiest thing to do, and it gets harder and harder. Now, that's, a, that's the human end of it. So what we have to do is to hold together two parallel truths that appear to contradict each other. One is that we are saved because God sovereignly chose us. And the other is that we are saved because with our wills, we agreed to surrender to Jesus. So anyone who says, I, we don't hear the phrase very much these days, and I'm quite glad we don't, I decided for Christ, that is less than half the story. Yes, you did. But the experience of every Christian, I believe, who thinks about it is that there was a fishing hook in your jaw for a long time before you realised it was there and God plays you on a jolly long line and all that's happened is he's reeled you in. So how do you keep all these things together? I suddenly thought there's a marvellous parallel in modern science, really modern science. If you listen to any of these professors who do a sort of quantum physics for the people program i'm thinking of people like what's his name brian cox jim al-khalili well worth looking at and science is asking us to believe two impossible things at once quite often quantum physics i was thinking was it about a month ago about how a particle can be in two places at once you think no it can't no it can't but depending which way you look at it it can now, we can't argue with it because we haven't got the knowledge. People have long known that they don't know whether light is particles or waves. It behaves like both. That's not new. Okay, not a scientist, neither am I. And you'd need to be a scientist to argue with it, but that is what now they believe. And as this isn't anti-God like a load of sciences, there's no, no harm in believing it. God's sovereignty, men's responsibility. Keep them together. So at the end of Romans 9, the big picture is focused down on this issue of righteousness. Israel were trying to do it their own way. And boy, were they good at that. Made people's lives a misery keeping it at them, you know. Whereas the righteousness that we have as believers in Jesus was God's gift. Hallelujah. So we start in Romans 10. I can testify about Israel, says Paul the Pharisee, who was one of the most aggro of them all they're zealous for god all right but they're going about it the wrong way they don't actually listen to what god said they're trying to do it themselves instead of submitting to the righteousness that god gives freely and it quotes a couple of old testament passages in support now the interesting thing is these are sort of parallel stories rather than direct connections 
It doesn't exactly make easy reading this passage, 5 to 10, you know, who will ascend, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that sort of thing. It becomes a bit clearer when you look at when it was originally written. The, the man who does these things will live by them, which is verse 5, is an actual quote from Leviticus 18. And in Leviticus 18, Moses is setting before the people the fact that they were going into a land whose religious and personal practices were absolutely disgusting. Apparently, archaeologists who've sort of, you know, uncovered the old clay tablets and stuff like that, so some of the things that used to go on in those nations that were in there before God brought his people into the land were absolutely unbelievable. You're talking about child sacrifice, you're talking about mass immorality, debauchery, the lot. And God said he was sick of it. And what he's saying, that passage, the man who does these things, what? Preceding verses, keep away from the sexual practices that these people have got. Don't marry them, don't let your children marry them, don't copy what they do. I have given you my laws. If you do these things, you'll be all right. Now that's the context there. But where he's talking about um, do not say in your heart... That's from a chapter in Deuteronomy. And again, the speaker is saying to the people who are all listening, look, you've got these laws. You are to keep away from what goes on among the nations that I'm throwing out, in front, throwing out to make room for you. Do not copy what they do. Now, I've given you my word. That's the word that's in your heart. You haven't got to say, oh, who's going to, this is too difficult. We, we can't reach up that high. Who's going to go to heaven and bring it? We can't dig that deep. It's too complicated. It's not difficult. Just keep my laws. But it's the difference between having it in your heart and trying to do it. Trying to do it all on your own or believing what God says. That's the parallel. You see... The reason I say it's a parallel is you could read Leviticus 18, the man who does these things will live in them, live by them. You could take that wrongly as a proof text that says, there you are, you can get there by doing it. That is not what the passage is saying, which is why I've dug into it that, that deep. So he's using that. Do you remember what it was like? There are prophecies in the Bible, some of which are fulfilled in the Bible and some of which are yet to be fulfilled. Do you remember when they crucified Jesus and the soldiers gambled over his clothes? One of the Gospels, I haven't got time to look it up, this happened to fulfil what the prophets said, they parted my clothes among them and they gambled for my tunic. But then it says, and another scripture says, not was fulfilled, says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Why does it say it differently? Because that one hasn't been finished yet. Nobody is ever going to divide Christ's garments among them and gamble over them again, ever. That's past and done. Resurrection to prove it. So you see, that's still to be fulfilled, but it reminded the gospel writer when they watched him on the cross. They looked on him whom they pierced. So this is, that's a sort of parallel, so is this. So what is the word that is near you? Not the old laws, but Paul says it's the word of faith which we are proclaiming. It's in your heart. 
And it says, confession of Jesus is Lord and belief in his resurrection. Now, it seems a funny way around that. I think I'd have put belief first before confession, wouldn't you? I mean, it's nothing to confess if you haven't believed it yet. So why is it the other way around? It occurred to me, I mean, this is difficult, <clears throat> but it occurred to me that it's a lot easier for us to stand up and say, yes, I believe in Jesus, than it was for them. I mean, these days, you get this beastly business about your truth and my truth, which is poppycock, but it does mean that if you choose to say you believe in Jesus, no one particularly is going to mind. You won't get persecuted for it, not, very, not in very many places in this country. There are places where you will. And not only did believing in Jesus meant for a Jew he'd be slung out the synagogue and cut off from the rest of his family, but if, a, if the Roman authorities heard about it, he'd be rebelling against Caesar, another king. You knew what happened to rebels. Romans were awfully good at it. So there's a real cost to confessing Jesus, which is why it's so crucial in the New Testament, the confession. Confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. I had a birthday recently and I've just spelt one of my record, one of my, um, an Amazon token I was given and I've got a record of Beethoven. Now everybody knows that Beethoven isn't alive anymore, but there's a sense in which you can say, oh, Beethoven lives, especially if you love classical music as I do. You can have Elvis if you like. I'd rather have Beethoven. There we go. Room for Elvis, lovely voice. Elvis lives. <clears throat> well, all right, his music, his, his music lives. We know what we mean. We mean something radically different when we say that Jesus is alive. As the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So confession means belief. It's not just, yeah, I believe... Yeah, I we use believe to mean something vague in ordinary language, don't we? But you see, this, I was amazed. I'd not looked this up before, so I'm grateful to you for putting me through this because I've learnt things. Um, everyone who trusts in him will not, be, will not be put to shame is a quotation for the most amazingly graphic passage in Isaiah 28. Now, some of the prophets, and Isaiah is among them in this passage, got so sarcastic about the people that they were sent to, to rebuke them for their rebellion and their complete persistence in ignoring everything that God said. Pig-headed rebellion the whole time. I could not believe when I read this. It's a long passage, but I'm going to read it. And it mentions drunkenness. I apologise for this if this is a sore point with any of you, but this is, in fact, I'm not going to read that verse, but it describes graphically the result of several evenings in a row spent on the bottle. If I read the verse, all the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. That isn't the graphic bit. I've missed it. Who is it he's, I'm still reading Isaiah, who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast, for it's do and do and do and do, rule on rule and rule on rule, a little here, a little there. What it's saying 
These people with their rules and regulations, which they've set up, really they think it's my word, but the way they're doing it, it jolly well isn't. These, li these little children, these people who are looking to you for your tea, for their, for, to be taught the ways of God, they want looking after, they want nurturing, and instead of you're doing, you must do this, you must do that, you must do that. In fact, the original, I don't know any Hebrew, but one commentary I looked at, this do and do, is virtually the Hebrew equivalent of, we might say, blah-de-blah, -blah, you know, all this blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, do this, don't do that. What good is it to them? Very well then, Isaiah goes on, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. They wouldn't listen. So the word of God to them will become do and do, do and do, rule and rule, blah-de-blah, blah-de-blah so that they'll go and fall backwards and be injured and snared and captured. Now, there is the sovereignty of God at work in the last stages of a rebellion. And it says, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, cornerstone. I lay in Zion a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Now, that's where this verse comes from. Come back to Romans 11. 10, sorry, not there yet. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Now you think of call on the name. We kind of throw these phrases about a bit. It reminds me of the person who swears a lot. And if something happens that's really worth swearing about, he hasn't got any language left because he's used it all up six bus. Do you know what I mean? Calling on. Think of share capital. I'm a multinational company and I want to double the size of my premises. What do I do? I have a share issue. And I say, look, I'm doing really well. Here's, here's why you should buy shares in my company. Um, I've got half a million um, ordinary shares at 50 pence each sale on the stock market. And um, what's that going to be? 250, 250 million pounds if you all buy them. Yeah. And, um, but I might say, right, it's 50p. I want 20p at sale and I want the rest of it when I ask for it. So they'll ring their shareholders or write to them and say, right, you now owe me the other 30 pence, all of you. That's calling on. Calling on people with an obligation. Calling on the name of the Lord. The name? Just Jesus? Well, yeah, but for name, think reputation. I could quote you names that would immediately put an idea in your mind. Rolls-Royce, Peter Mandelson, Tony Blair, Winston Churchill... See, your mind's racing, you know, you know the reputation. We, it's almost like there's a bank account and we're drawing checks on it, we're drawing money out of it, and the, the, the bank account is the name of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus. All who call upon his name will be saved, the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Now that's how far we've got at the end of Romans 10 verse 13. Thank you for staying with me, but your questions... Firstly, how are you coping with the doctrine of God's sovereignty? Do you think it ought to be possible to be saved by living according to God's law, by keeping the Ten Commandments? Does it seem wrong that the Bible says you can't? You might be, uh, thirdly, you might be arguing with somebody and they might say, well, God's decided it all in advance anyway, so what's the point? How would you answer them? Now, these are massive questions. I'm not saying it because I wrote them. They're all in the passage. Over to you.